This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. This is episode five of our series about stars during wartime or Star Wars. If you're familiar with that other Star Wars series, then I suppose this would be the Empire Strikes Back of the piece. Instead of brash, arrogant, but talented pilot Han Solo, We have brash, arrogant, but talented multi-hyphenate genius Orson Welles. And instead of headstrong, love-struck, iconically quaffed Princess Leia, we have Rita Hayworth. The stunning red-headed dancer-slash-actress, best known today as the star of Gilda, whose pin-up photo played a key role in the Shawshank Redemption, was certainly love-struck and iconically quaffed, but the persona she projected of a self-confident sex goddess who could wrap the men of the world around her little finger effortlessly was a lie. Or maybe more accurately, it was an invention. Forced into show business by her sexually abusive father at age 12, manipulated into movie stardom by her pimp-like first husband, and imprisoned within that stardom by Columbia studio chief Harry Cohn, Rita Hayworth made it to her mid-20s, operating on the assumption that her true identity was a dirty secret that had to be protected at all costs. Hayworth got to have a brief respite from this personality crisis in the early 1940s when she fell in love with and married Orson Welles. Welles, at first, was fascinated by the disparity between the Rita Hayworth the world thought they knew and the shy homebody who spent much of their marriage begging Welles to take her away from the Hollywood life that she hated. At first, Wells embraced the role of savior, and his relationship with Rita thrived during World War II as the boy wonder auteur contemplated a move out of movies and into politics. 
But eventually, the very vulnerability that Wells had once found so attractive turned into a liability. Hayworth and Wells' complicated, psychologically fraught relationship seeped on screen in the one film they made together. When that production was over, they went their separate ways, and Rita felt more trapped than ever in her double life. As she famously and terribly sadly put it, men go to bed with Gilda and wake up with me. Who was the me that was so different from Gilda? And why was Rita Hayworth's life and career so horribly bisected to begin with? Join us, won't you? As we learn about the two Rita Hayworths and Orson Welles' brief efforts to save her from her past, her present, and herself. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Rita Hayworth wasn't her real name. She was born Margarita Cansino in 1918. Her father, Eduardo Cansino, was a dancer from Madrid, and her mother, Volga Haworth, was a Ziegfeld girl. The family lived in Queens, and little Rita, who was chubby and shy, started taking dance classes at the age of four. In 1930, Eduardo Cansino moved his family to Los Angeles, where he worked as a choreographer at Warner Brothers and opened a small dance studio. During the depths of the Depression, Cansino's school couldn't pay the family's bills, and he had to return to performing. And he needed a partner. For reasons only known to him, he decided that his 12-year-old daughter was the right girl for the job. Margarita's father started booking their act in offshore floating casinos and then in clubs across the border in Tijuana, both immune to the laws of prohibition, as well as any Puritan qualms over hiring a clearly underage girl to dance in a nightclub. Around this time, Margarita's parents started lying about her age so that they could keep the preteen out of school and on the dance floor, where she could bring home the family bacon. In Mexico, Eduardo tried to sell the pair as not father and daughter, but husband and wife. And, according to Barbara Leeming, who would write biographies on both Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles, offstage, in his bedroom, Eduardo forced his teenage daughter to perform wifely duties. Terrified to speak in public lest she might slip and give away the charade, Margarita was noticeably withdrawn off the dance floor, to the point that most Americans she met assumed she didn't speak English. But on the dance floor, tarted up by her father in a caricature of sultry Spanish womanhood, she came alive. By the time the duo landed a gig performing at the Agua Caliente Jockey Club, a hot spot 15 minutes south of San Diego that tended to attract Hollywood suits looking to blow off steam and blow their salaries at the card table, Margarita's mother had taken to accompanying her husband and daughter to work. And at home, at Volga's insistence, Eduardo slept in one room, and mother and daughter shared a double bed in another. 
Max Arno, a casting director at Warner Brothers, first saw Margarita at the Agua Caliente around 1933. Arno marveled at Margarita's way of moving to the music like some kind of marvelous big cat. But he thought she was too young. A year later, he screen-tested her, but Warner's ultimately rejected the future Rita Hayworth due to her quote-unquote hair problems. Essentially, her hair was too thick, too dark, too curly, and her hairline dipped too far into her forehead. In other words, she was too visibly ethnic. Eventually, in 1935, a Fox VP named Winfield Sheehan signed Margarita to a piddling contract and changed her first name to Rita in the process. Sheehan sought to exploit Rita's visible ethnicity. He got her jobs performing Spanish dances in a number of movies, and because Brown was Brown in 1930s Hollywood, Rita also got three lines in Charlie Chan in Egypt. But then Sheehan got fired, and Rita's contract was tossed with him, leaving Rita brokenhearted and the Cansino family scrambling for a new source of income. Enter Eddie Judson, a middle-aged, snazzily-dressed former car salesman and self-styled Pygmalion who persuaded Rita's parents that it would be good for her career if he were to take her dancing at nightclubs where movie folk were known to troll for fresh meat. Before they would head out for Ciro's or the Trocadero, Judson would coach Rita on what to wear and how to carry herself. Rita was happy to have such guidance, as was her father, who believed Judson's puffed-up claims that he could turn Rita into a star. When 41-year-old Judson proposed to 18-year-old Rita, she said yes. Her parents were livid, maybe not least because their meal ticket was now moving in with another man. Eddie Judson fueled their contempt by demanding that the Cancinos pay Rita her earnings accumulated through her teenage years money which her parents had already spent. Eddie Judson was good for Rita's career, at least at first. He got her signed to a contract at Columbia Pictures, which was then making the transition from Poverty Row startup to a full-fledged major studio. Columbia's chief, Harry Cohn, took little initial interest in Rita, except for insisting that she change her last name to something less Mexican-sounding. But the name was just the beginning— Judson knew that earning potential for a Spanish dancer was limited. He had to prove that Rita could do more, could be something else. First, he had to solve the problem of the hair. A Columbia hairstylist suggested that Rita's hair be lightened from its harsh natural hue, but the real problem was her hairline. At the stylist's suggestion, Rita submitted to two years' worth of primitive electrolysis treatments, which zapped and killed each hair follicle one by one at a cost of $10 per follicle, which Judson paid for. He also hired a press agent at $75 a week, and together they coached the still paralyzingly shy Rita as to how to sell herself to reporters and photographers, whom the Judsons welcomed into their home nearly every day. Rita did whatever Eddie told her to do. Rita became known as the most cooperative girl in Hollywood. Between 1937 and 1938, Rita made 10 movies, sometimes playing parts so small she wasn't even credited. Her career was going nowhere, and her contract was on the verge of expiring. Judson got in the habit of buying drinks for photographers in nightclubs, just so that they would take pictures of his wife. Legend has it that everything changed when Rita splurged on a $500 dress. 
that would be more like $8,000 in today's money, and wore it to the Trocadero, where she knew Harry Cohn and Howard Hawks were scouting for a new girl to put in Columbia's biggest movie of the upcoming year, Only Angels Have Wings. The legend is probably wrong. Either way, Rita got the part, and the film was a huge hit. Rita got her contract extension, and then she made five undistinguished films before her next big break. When Raoul Walsh cast her in a film called The Strawberry Blonde, Rita's hair, now auburn, was dyed accordingly. This cosmetic change wasn't purely cosmetic. In becoming a strawberry blonde, Rita Hayworth effectively erased the last visible vestige of her Hispanic heritage. And in doing so opened up a world of possibility. Hollywood at that time routinely cast white actors and actresses in films about Asians, Arabs, Hispanics, and they could only see most identifiably ethnic performers as, at best, an exotic anomaly, but more commonly, a literal dose of color to add to a film's background or periphery. So when Rita was cast as the Spanish femme fatale in the 1941 bullfighter melodrama Blood and Sand, it was a sign of the triumph of her makeover. The only way a woman of second-generation Spanish heritage could play a Spaniard in a movie was by fully convincing Hollywood that they passed as Anglo. No less an irony was the fact that Rita, a girl described by everyone who knew her as withdrawn and almost childlike, a cute homebody but not a looker, was starting to make an impression on screen as the great, glamorous sex goddess of her era. As if to try to make certain that Columbia's Harry Cohn was convinced of Rita's potential in this arena, Eddie tried to literally pimp out his wife to the studio mogul. Eddie finagled an invitation for the couple to spend a weekend with Cohn on his yacht. And then he pretended to be sick at the last minute so that his wife could be alone with her boss and let him put the moves on her. For the first time in her marriage, or really her life, Rita refused. Cohn knew the starlet's sexual rejection of him had come in defiance of her husband's orders, and that made him all the more determined to somehow, someday, get even with Rita Hayworth. Blood and Sand made 23-year-old Hayworth a legit up-and-coming star, and her work in it with choreographer Hermes Pan helped her land the coveted spot of romantic interest-slash-dance partner to Fred Astaire in the wartime screwball musical You'll Never Get Rich. As part of the promotion of the film, Rita posed for Life magazine photographer Bob Landry. Landry's photo of Rita, perched on a bed in a white nightgown, would become one of the most popular pinups of the war era. By this point, Rita was desperate to get Eddie Judson out of the picture. Harry Cohn had slowly started to assume personal control over her career, and if Eddie was no longer effective as her manager, then all he was was a terrible husband. In addition to his horribly controlling behavior, he had carried on regular affairs throughout their time together. And when Rita called him on his infidelities or other problems in the marriage, he would threaten to throw acid in her face, thus wrecking her ability to make her own living. While shooting a film called My Gal Sal, Rita had a romance, really her first without coercion, with co-star Victor Mature. And though he had a wife of his own, the dalliance gave Rita the courage to initiate a divorce from Eddie. Before she could file the papers, 
Eddie took $25,000 out of their shared safe deposit box and checked into the Beverly Hills Hotel, leaving Rita completely cash poor. She was so destitute that she couldn't afford food and would have to invite herself over to friends' houses for dinner or else not eat. In the divorce, Rita didn't want Judson testifying about their private lives, namely his habit of encouraging her to sleep her way up the Hollywood ladder, so she agreed to give him all of her assets, everything except for her car, and pay him a monthly portion of her wages on top of it. It was around this time that Rita met Orson Welles. If Rita was, at this point in her career, a shy young woman who was happy to take orders from others if it meant she could avoid expressing her real personality, if she had even been able to develop a real personality over the course of a life that up to this point had been entirely dominated by father-slash-pimp figures, then Orson Welles was the exact opposite. By 1941, he had ridden an early wave of fame for his experimental theater efforts, like an all-black voodoo-themed production of Macbeth, and groundbreaking radio productions like War of the Worlds, into a contract with RKO. He had then lost much goodwill when his directorial debut, The Visionary Citizen Kane, had its release interfered with by William Randolph Hearst and subsequently failed to make money. His next two features had disastrous fates. Wells went to Brazil during the editing of The Magnificent Ambersons so that he could shoot a docudrama hybrid called It's All True, In the end, Ambersons was taken away from him and given a sham ending. It's All True was abandoned, and Wells' contract at RKO was cancelled. While he was in Brazil agonizing over It's All True, Orson saw Rita on the cover of Life magazine. And just like that, Orson Wells had a new obsession. He started telling anyone who would listen that he was going to go back to America, find Rita Hayworth, and marry her. To this point, he had never even met her. When Wells did return to Hollywood, he was distracted from his stated romantic quest by the production of Jane Eyre, in which he played Mr. Rochester. But meanwhile, word of Wells's stated intentions made their way to Rita, who thought the boy genius must be punking her. Rita Hayworth didn't see herself the way everyone who saw that Life magazine portrait saw her. She still saw herself as the pudgy Spanish girl, who was now wearing fake hair and an electrolysized mask, She thought of herself as the girl who had dropped out of school before finishing ninth grade, who had virtually no practice in thinking for herself, and yet was fiercely motivated to protect what she felt was the shameful truth about herself. But she agreed to go to a dinner party at Joseph Cotton's house, knowing it was a setup so that Wells could meet her. And when he did meet her, Orson realized that the Rita Hayworth who seduced him from the cover of Life magazine was an illusion. Her love goddess persona, Wells would say, was a total impersonation, like Lon Chaney or something. Nothing to do with her. She didn't have that kind of sex appeal at all. She carried it off because of her gypsy blood. But her essential quality was sweetness. There was a richness of texture about her that was very interesting and very unlike a movie star. This discovery only enchanted Orson more. Now it was apparent that, for all of the other obvious attractions to Rita Hayworth, she was also something that you'd never suspect. She was a great actress. After that dinner, Orson Welles called Rita Hayworth every night and, still convinced he wasn't really interested in her, she refused to take any of those calls. 
For five weeks, he kept trying. And he wore her down. She slowly revealed more of herself to him. The real self. The one who took no pleasure in being a movie star or even a performer. She just felt that she was doing her job. The same job she had been doing every day since the age of 12. The only way she knew how to make a living. And, thanks to Eddie Judson, she still had to work as hard as ever to make a living. She wasn't professionally precious, but in every conceivable way, she was insecure. The only way she knew how to measure her self-worth was by whether or not men wanted to go to bed with her. The previous men in her life had exploited this. Orson Welles sought to protect her because of it. In a complete 180 from her first marriage, Rita and Orson kept their budding romance out of the media. Rita moved into Orson's house, and the two avoided the nightclub scene. He doted on her, and to the extent that she was able, she thrived under his gaze. Her insecurities were too major to be quelled entirely by a little thing like true love. She was constantly accusing him of ogling other women, less because of him and more because she couldn't believe the smartest, most talented guy she'd ever met would be satisfied by her dumbass for long. But at the same time, in Orson's entourage of theater and radio performers, Rita felt like she belonged in a community for the first time. And when Wells, who had been rejected from the army for his bad back and asthma, started cooking up a plan for getting the whole gang together to entertain the troops, Rita was eager to be part of it. Rita was already putting in her time at the Hollywood Canteen. In fact, as we discussed in our first episode in this series, photographs of her at the canteen doing domestic goddess stuff whilst dressed like a bedroom goddess became a key part of the nightclub's carefully calibrated self-image. But Orson's Mercury Wonder Show, housed in a giant tent near the canteen on Cahuenga Boulevard, would be something between a compliment and a counteroffensive to the canteen's wholesome stargazing and soda pop dance parties. Wells felt guilty enough over not being able to fight that he wanted to do something pretty spectacular on the home front. He started filling the house that he and Rita now shared with magic props and gadgets, and he started training his paramour, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at this time, to be his magician's assistant. He taught her how to convincingly fake psychic abilities. He practiced sawing her in half. He taught her how to be afraid of none of it, and in the process... Rita started to loosen up and let go of some of her inhibitions. She also stopped paying a monthly stipend to Eddie Judson. She figured that with Orson standing by her, her ex-husband could no longer hurt her. She was wrong. One night in 1943, after a smashing Mercury Wonder Show preview, Rita was served with a lawsuit from Eddie— at Orson's urging, Rita countersued, alleging that she had only agreed to the previous settlement because she was afraid of Eddie and demanding he return the assets that were rightfully hers. But later, Orson changed his mind. Both of them just wanted Eddie Judson to go away. And eventually, Rita's new love recommended that she pay Eddie off, once and for all, so that they could be done with him. In the middle of all this, Rita was shooting what would become one of her most iconic movies, Cover Girl, in which she and Gene Kelly were paired as a couple whose relationship is threatened when the girl outgrows the boy's Brooklyn nightclub and becomes a Broadway star. The girl ultimately checks in fame and fortune for true love. Feminist parable, it wasn't. 
But during wartime, when so many young women had been forced into unglamorous wartime jobs and or were separated from the men they loved, CoverGirl managed to appeal to a number of potent audience identification fantasies, not least those of young soldiers, for whom the epitome of idealized American girl was embodied by the former Margarita Cancino. The choice between fame and love made in CoverGirl was a choice Rita would have been happy to make in real life. Now that she was in her mid-twenties, and for the first time in her life in a relationship with a man who didn't try to suppress her every desire, she started to think about what she, Rita, actually wanted. She knew now, without a doubt, that she was done being a movie star. This realization became concrete the night before the official opening of the Mercury Wonder Show, when Harry Cohen announced that he was forbidding Rita from participating in Orson's magic show. She was under contract to Columbia, Cohen told her. Her job was to star in CoverGirl. That was her only job. He wasn't paying her to get cut in half by her boyfriend. Rita's first impulse was to say, Fine, Harry Cohen's going to cancel my contract if I do the magic show? Great, I'd love to get out of my contract. But Orson talked her down. He couldn't let her throw away her entire career. He told Rita that he would have to replace her. Rita was horrified. And so, in order to rebuild Rita's ego, Orson asked her to marry him. And on September 3rd, 1943, they eloped on Rita's lunch break from shooting the Gene Kelly musical. And though Marlena Dietrich had replaced Rita in the magic act, every night Rita watched from the wings, and every night Orson made a speech explaining his wife's absence, blasting Harry Cohn, and declaring that he would never appear in a Columbia picture. In early September, with CoverGirl wrapped and the final Mercury Wonder Show over and done with, Rita and Orson went to Chicago, where he had been tapped to deliver a speech at an event called the Mass Rally to Win the Peace. By this point, Wells had come to believe that Hollywood was not a hospitable place for an artist looking to do anything but bolster the commercial status quo, and he started seriously thinking about leaving the movie business for Washington. Rita was all about the career change. When Wells asked her how she'd feel about him going into politics, as he remembered later... She just lit up with joy. She was ready to give Hollywood up. Delighted. Would have gone with great pleasure. Would never have regretted it for a minute. When they returned to Los Angeles, Mr. and Mrs. Wells gave up their house, put all of their things in storage, and decamped for the East Coast, where Orson was to make another set of appearances designed to further his fledgling political career. Now that the fantasy of a life away from Hollywood was actually happening, Rita found that it wasn't quite the escape she had imagined. She was insecure about her lack of education, and instead of embracing the intellectual life of her husband, she basically stayed quiet except to rubber stamp everything Orson said. And at his political events, she was expected to bring the glamour as his dolled-up, smiling-but-silent-arm candy— It wasn't the same thing as being at Harry Cohn's beck and call, but it was still a kind of exploitation of her beauty and body nonetheless. Meanwhile, suddenly the tabloids got wind of the fact that Rita had paid her first husband to keep quiet. They didn't know what he was being quiet about, 
because he was keeping quiet, but they figured it must be something pretty epic if she had been willing to pay so much. This was exactly the kind of press that Orson Welles didn't need as he was trying to mount a political career. It could only confirm suspicions that Hollywood people were unserious at best, and at worst, total depraved trash. Wells suggested that they hold a press conference, at which they would tell the press that Eddie's vow of silence was standard divorce stuff, and not a smoking gun. The press conference worked, in that it got the newspapers off their back for a little while. But what Rita didn't realize at the time was that her husband wasn't just, or even primarily, protecting her. He was protecting his own career. And over the next months, Orson Welles' priorities when it came to work and marriage would become increasingly clear. Eventually, the Wellses had to return to Hollywood, and shortly after settling back in, Rita found out she was pregnant. She was ecstatic. Finally, she would have a chance to give a child the healthy upbringing that she had never had. Orson was less enthusiastic. He already had a daughter from his first marriage whom he barely saw. But the expansion of his family gave him an excuse to upgrade their living quarters, and soon Orson and Rita moved into a spectacular mansion in Brentwood, complete with an indoor solarium with glass roof, so that Rita could sunbathe nude. Rita was five months pregnant when Wells left the Brentwood house and decamped on a long trip to aid Franklin Roosevelt in his bid for re-election. Even when not pregnant, Rita was insecure, but in her condition, she became exponentially sure that when her husband left, it meant he wasn't coming back. Her hairdressers and makeup girls, the only people in Hollywood whom Rita felt really comfortable around, stoked the star's fears, telling her it was an abomination for a husband to leave their wife in such a state. Rita's neediness, if initially charming, was now a major turnoff for her husband. The more she begged him to stay with her, the more he was moved to stay away, and her habit of seeking affirmation through sex now struck him as increasingly desperate. With the world's number one sex icon his to have, hold, or ignore, Wells filled his life with work, mostly projects which gave him an excuse to never be home, from writing a political column for the New York Post to launching multiple radio series to editing a magazine to, oh yeah, acting in one film a year to make money. When he was around, there were tearful scenes every night, and his wife's paranoid emotional outbursts led to a sick kind of wish fulfillment. Tired of being harangued for crimes he didn't commit, once Rita became pregnant, he really did start cheating on her, sometimes with prostitutes, sometimes with starlets, often with Judy Garland. Rita would try to source proof of Orson's infidelities, but all of their mutual friends would lie to her in order to protect him, which, of course, only made her more crazy. When Roosevelt was re-elected, Orson returned to Brentwood with visions of his own political triumphs dancing in his head. FDR had advised him to run for Senate. In late December, Rita gave birth to a girl named Rebecca, and the congratulations telegram from the Roosevelts included an invitation to the inauguration. Rita wasn't far enough along in her recovery to make the trip, but her husband didn't see why that should mean that he shouldn't go. 
In fact, he tacked on a lecture tour to his trip out east, leaving Rita at home, alone, again, and unsure if when her husband would even return. At her wit's end, with no coping skills, Rita started drinking heavily and even going on death-wish joyrides through the Hollywood Hills. And then, as if to acknowledge that they had given up on their once-shared utopian dream of leaving Hollywood behind, both husband and wife agreed to make films which seemed to defy their stated goals of what they wanted for themselves. Rita took the title role in Gilda, another film casting her as a sexual object, only this one would turn Rita Hayworth, the sexual object, into a decade-defining icon. And Wells both abandoned his pursuit of politics and softened his resistance to making commercial cinema. He took a job directing The Stranger, which would be the first Hollywood film to deal specifically with the Nazi Holocaust, but was also a relatively formally conventional genre film. Wells used this project as an excuse to move out of the Brentwood house and into an apartment on the Samuel Goldwyn lot. Rita tried to talk her husband into returning to their marital home, but he prevaricated. And then suddenly, Rita announced that she was filing for divorce. Once everything was settled, though, Rita held off on signing the papers. She kept holding out hope that her husband would come back and somehow save her from having to act in movies, which in Rita's case, if not in every actress's case, was absolutely tantamount to selling her body, and which she was only doing just to take care of her daughter. But he didn't come back. Instead, he headed to the East Coast to mount an ambitious stage show based on Around the World in 80 Days, stuffed to the gills with music by Cole Porter and magic tricks by Wells himself, and all of it financed by Liz Taylor's future husband, Mike Todd. And then Todd suddenly dropped out of the venture before its Broadway opening, leaving Wells scrambling to pay the bills. He made a bunch of phone calls, with no luck, and finally, he called Harry Cohn at Columbia and told him that he had an idea for a suspense film that could be made cheaply and make back a lot of money. He told Cohn that the movie was all his if he'd advance Wells $50,000 on the spot. Cohn asked to hear the idea. Wells had been trying to mount a film of Carmen for a while, so he pitched that with extra sleaze because he knew his audience. The theme of this picture is sex in the raw, purple passion, every attitude of amorous dalliance, the longest kisses the censors will allow. Cohn was thus sold, and when Around the World in 80 Days left Wells financially destitute, he returned to Hollywood to make a movie at a studio at which he'd sworn he'd never work for his almost ex-wife's tyrant employer. When Rita heard that Orson was making a movie for her home studio, she lobbied for the female lead over Wells' initial objections, which were swiftly dismissed because Cohn was so into the publicity potential of the pairing. And Rita was determined to use the shooting of the lady from Shanghai to repair her marriage. She convinced Orson to move into her house during production of the film. She felt she needed Orson as a protector and a potential escape hatch more than ever. After Gilda, her sex symbol image had ballooned ever larger, to the point that the GIs manning the bikini nuclear tests 
had nicknamed the bomb Gilda, and even, according to legend, affixed Rita's legendary pinup to the side of the devastating weapon. When Rita got word of this, she was furious, as angry as Orson had ever seen her. She wanted to hold a press conference to disassociate herself from the bomb, but Harry Cohn wouldn't let her. Rita felt her identity had not only been stolen from her, but distorted many times over. This identity crisis would work its way into the movie Rita and Orson made together, which turned out not to be an adaptation of Carmen, but of a Sherwood King novel called If I Die Before I Wake. In his film, Wells kept the basic structure of the novel while making tweaks that seemed to reflect his relationship with Rita, her illusory allure, his guilt over abandoning her, and his sense that, even if they were living together again during shooting, that their romance was ultimately doomed. As always, Rita was happy to do whatever Orson told her to do, and in this case, she trusted him to showcase her as a serious actress for the first time in her career. In fact, Wells was determined to deconstruct and subvert Rita's sex goddess image. He started by having her flowing red hair chopped off and dyed an icy blonde. Then he proceeded to shoot the film almost devoid of close-ups of the glamour girl, a bold directorial choice which was circumvented when the film's editor, Viola Thompson, told Harry Cohn that she couldn't cut Wells's mess of footage together unless he went back and did reshoots. Neither studio chief nor editor understood that Wells had been trying to critique the fetishism of Rita's beauty, not to reinforce it. But that didn't matter because Wells didn't have final cut. Cohn also insisted that Wells add a singing number and cut much of the famous Funhouse sequence, which had initially been rife with references to sexual violence, full of imagery of bifurcated and mutilated women. Here's a sidebar. Later, the preponderance of imagery of bisected women cut from the film would inspire a conspiracy theory that Wells was responsible for the most famous bisecting of a woman in 1940s Los Angeles, that of Elizabeth Short or The Black Dahlia. Mary Pasios, the author of a 1998 book accusing Wells of the crime, suggested that there was evidence that Wells and Short knew each other, that they frequented the same restaurant, and that Wells's habit of sawing women in half in his magic act was significant, given that the body was dumped in a vacant lot where Wells's Mercury Wonder Show had been performed. But in fact, Pasios was wrong about the location where the body had been dumped. And a sidebar. Even with this studio interference, Wells managed to make a stunning film, which at times feels startlingly confessional. In the beginning of The Lady from Shanghai, Orson's character Michael would rescue Rita's character, Elsa, from an implied rape, not so different from his real-life role in liberating her from Eddie Judson. In the movie, he then woos her with claims that he's going to free her from her unhappy marriage of convenience, much as Orson once promised to help Rita escape Hollywood. But then, in the movie, he seems to lose interest in chivalry, as Elsa becomes increasingly dependent on his promises. Oh, Michael. Fair Rosie. You love me very much. I do. Do you still want to take me away with you? Why do you ask me that? Tell me where we'll go, Michael. Will you carry me off with you into the sunrise? Stop tormenting me. I'll take proper care of you. You won't starve. I don't care where it is, Michael. Just take me there. Take me quick. Take me. 
The film builds to perhaps the most famous set of images Wells ever directed. The shootout in the Funhouse Hall of Mirrors, where Orson's Michael witnesses Rita's Elsa die at the hands of her husband. Michael can't save her. Maybe he doesn't even want to save her. This is maybe the most beautifully visual metaphor for Wells' own relationship with Hayworth that he could have constructed. There was probably no way for him to save her. The Hall of Mirrors of fame refracted and duplicated her image so much that he couldn't be sure which version of her was the real thing. But maybe he also had to save himself from a life as a living life preserver for a woman who seemed destined to drown. While noting that at times in the film, Rita may as well be speaking for herself and not for her character, Wells's biographer Simon Kello says it's wrong to read The End of the Lady from Shanghai as an allusion to the failed marriage of its director and star. Instead, Kello reads it as Wells's commentary on and goodbye to Hollywood. And it's true that he would exile himself to Europe shortly after, and it wasn't like he pined for Rita on his European sojourn. In fact, it was the other way around. At the end of the shoot, Orson moved out of Rita's house, and she finally signed the divorce papers. Coincidentally, the same day she appeared in court to petition to end her marriage, Rita was on the cover of Life magazine, marked with the headline, The Love Goddess in America. After brief affairs with David Niven and Howard Hughes, soon Rita left America herself, also for Europe, where she began dating Prince Ali Khan, who was then married to someone else. Rita started to feel as though she had made a terrible mistake in letting Orson get away, and she hoped that news of her latest romance would reach him and make him jealous. It did, but it didn't. By mid-1949, Ali was divorced, and he and Rita were set to marry. Rita made one last-ditch attempt to win Orson back. She telegrammed him in Rome and asked him to meet her in Cannes. He couldn't get a last-minute commercial flight, so he rode in a cargo plane, standing up all the way. In Cannes, Rita had a whole romantic act worked up. Candles, champagne, a negligee. She suggested they run off together and remarry. Orson knew it would be a disaster if Rita actually married Ali Khan, but he couldn't save her this time. He was in love with another woman, So Rita married Ali Khan the next day, and Orson Welles felt guilty for the rest of his life. Later, he'd recall that Rita had once told him, the only happiness I've ever had in my life has been with you. Welles thought, If this was happiness, imagine what the rest of her life had been. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Our show is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Today's episode featured a very special guest, Larry Harold, as Orson Welles. If you like the show, please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and rate and review us there. 
And please, tell a friend. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. And if I knew what to do, then I'd do it. But the poor that I have, I'll get to it. And forever for her is over for me. Forever. Just a word that she said that means never. To be with another together. And with the weight of the feather, it tore into me. <laughs>